University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Tightrope surgery. Who would have thought that such an unfamiliar procedure would be so well-known in last year's LSU and Alabama's season? Of course, we knew all about that surgery because that surgery mattered for that first Saturday in November. It was amazing to see how many LSU and Alabama fans familiarized themselves with the health status of Tua Tungalavoa because they wanted to know whether or not he was going to be prepared for that game or not. And depending on which side you're on, you might determine the level of the effect of that surgery had on the outcome of that college football game. Is there anything more tribal than college football? Even just bringing up that very fact that it did have a major outcome in the game, you immediately entrenched into your Tiger fandom or you entrenched into your Alabama fandom, me being in the minority up here. The answer is there's nothing more tribal right now than politics. There's nothing more inherently wrong with surrounding ourselves with like-minded folks. However, tribalism comes with a host of downsides, such as feelings of superiority or faultlessness or self-righteousness. And let's not forget the isolation of our mind from the way that others think, the quarantining of our eyes and ears from the stories of people who are different from us, and the exclusion of those that are not up to our standards. This is the great danger in seeing things only from one point of view, even when you think you're right. Tribalism can't be reasoned with. When a tribe feels threatened, instead of listening to a different perspective, the tribe ultimately entrenches itself deeper and deeper. The tribe wants to feel safe, secure, certain, but above all, right. And we find ourselves in this tribalism everywhere we look. But of course, tribalism would never exist in the church, would it? For this, we take a look at the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 1. And as you're turning there, let me set the tone for you of where we have come from and where we're going. We're in the thick of our series, Forging Through the Fog, How the Church Leads a Grace-Filled Way in an Era of Partisan Politics. We are looking at the way that Jesus' followers can live in this highly divisive time of American politics. We're not discussing partisan issues. We're not endorsing certain politicians. And we are not insinuating who you should and shouldn't vote for. Instead, we are examining the question of what, instead of toting party lines and political figures, Jesus is more interested in us living out a way of peace and justice and mercy and kindness and civility and love no matter the cost. What if Jesus is less interested in whether we vote Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent and more concerned with our fidelity to God and to loving neighbor no matter who that neighbor is? And for this, we take a look at the context of our passage in Acts chapter 15. We find that Jesus has amassed a following. He's commissioned them to continue his work. He ascended into heaven, and the church begins to experience exponential growth. 
That is to say, they grew in a Jewish-centric communities around Israel and the surrounding countries. But then the faith broadened beyond the confines of the Jewish heritage into the Gentile world. That word Gentile is used by Jews to talk about people who are non-Jewish. And since Christianity formed out of the Jewish religious tradition, there were a whole host of of rituals and rites that, that came along with it. This, of course, included circumcision, the details of which I will cut out of this conversation. In short, oh, some of y'all got the pun, some didn't. In short, for the Jewish Christians, they believed that these Gentile Christians must first fulfill the practices of the Mosaic law in order to be considered part of the church. And to make this clear, this is what happens in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. For these Jewish Christians, this was not a question of the right of who could be on the finance committee or who was eligible to participate in the deacon board. This was the question of the actual salvation of the Gentile Christians. These Jewish Christians are making the case that you must look like us, practice faith like us, believe like us, and not do anything that questions your membership or the very salvation of your soul is at stake. Does that sound familiar to you? It should be because the church has a long history of drawing a proverbial line in the sand about looks and beliefs and practices. And typically, these salvation ultimatums are pointed at a particular group of people based on the way that the person looks, the way that the person talks, their sexuality, their belief system, their worldview, their political persuasion, and so on and so forth. And we might be thinking to ourselves, that's not true. Or you might be thinking to yourself, absolutely, there are certain people that should be included and excluded from the faith community. And we find ourselves that this Jewish-Christian barrier is not all that unfamiliar to us. This idea of exclusion based on principles and labels and categories of who we believe is in and out, worthy and unworthy, right and wrong, righteous and unholy. And whether or not we like labels, the church is too guilty of being exclusionary. Sometimes it's not overtly obvious, while at other times exclusion sticks out like a sore thumb. Let's do a brief visualization activity. I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I want you to imagine that while you're on vacation, you decide to attend a church in the place where you're vacationing. Because we all know that when we go on vacation, we of course go to church, right? And when you step through the doorways, you are greeted by one of the pastoral staff who ushers you inside the sanctuary, introducing you and seating you next to a nice couple. The musician gets up to lead worship, the pastor gets up to preach, and because it's not COVID-19 pandemic, you stand in line to receive communion, and then you go out to lunch with that nice couple afterwards discussing your support of your particular political party. Now open your eyes, and I want to ask you a few questions. When you visualize the pastoral staff that greeted you at the door, was it a woman? Was that nice couple that you were seated next to two men? The musicians that led in worship, were they playing guitars? The pastor who preached, was he black? 
the communion cup that you partook in, was it wine? And the conversation over lunch supporting your particular political party was that allegiance to the Libertarian Party. It's okay if one or all of your answers are no. You see, your brain creates images of what is familiar. Your brain is not a fan of unfamiliar. And I mentioned a few examples of things that are less familiar in a predominantly white church in the South. No matter how much we like the idea of unfamiliar things, when we immediately are confronted with them, our body actually kicks in a stress response to very unfamiliar situations long before you consciously are aware of what you're experiencing. Unconsciously, your body responds to these things. It's a natural alert system within you. And whether you realize it or not, every day we interact with a world and others with a both conscious and unconscious bias. A conscious bias is easier to spot because we know who it is, we know what we see as unfavorable. An unconscious bias is way sneakier and deserves our focus. You see, an unconscious bias is shaped by experience, by background, culture, and specific religious orientation. And whether we realize it or not, these things shape our beliefs, our opinions, our values, and our way of thinking. The unconscious bias is actually a mechanism of, neuro of your neurological system. Your brain is trying to process, get this, 11, pieces, 11 million pieces of information per second. So the unconscious aspect of your brain helps us make mindless decisions so that our conscious mind can process more significant decisions. So the, the brain depends on visual and audio and scent and tasting and feeling sense that make unconscious decisions and opinions. And our unconscious bias gives us an instantaneous decision and opinion on almost everything around us. The problem is that our, the anthropologists have proven that our unconscious bias is wrong a lot of the time, especially when it involves rational thinking. And we, too, have hosts of unconscious bias of certain types of food. More importantly, we have an unconscious bias against certain types of people based on their age, gender, sexuality, their nationality, their religious affiliation, their political allegiance, their economic status, or endless other categories. And politically speaking, this unconscious bias determines the politicians that we support the politicians we vote into office, the way we feel about certain perspectives of things and other people. And as we can see for these Jewish Christians, when it comes to the church, we also have a bias as to who we think is in and out, right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous, tolerable and intolerable, who we are willing to allow to lead us and who we follow the way that we do and do not worship, the theological perspectives and views that we either have or reject, the ethical stances that we hold, and the immoral views we disdain, and so on. But like the Jewish Christians from Acts, our unconscious bias determines how we see and how we measure others. Let's do another exercise real quick. I want you to think of three people you trust most in this world that are not your family members. Think of those three names that pop up in your mind right now. Not somebody that's in your family. Again, someone not in your family. 
Now, if you were to write those three names down or type them into your phone, I would want you to then go and to mark a check or to categorize somebody based on their gender, their race, their ethnicity, their age, their sexual orientation, their education level, their disability, their marital status, and political affiliation, and religious preference. This is a, a unique way to give us a perspective into that maybe we don't surround ourselves with people that are that different from us. Because as we go through the category, we find that people more likely that we trust are people that are exactly like us in all of these categories. But look at what happens next in verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made the choice among you that Gentiles might hear from the lip, my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepts them by giving the Spirit of God to them, just as he did to us. God did not discriminate between us and them, for God purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The apostles who were all born into a Jewish and then chose to follow Jesus society contemplated the conflict that was presented to them. Peter himself had been confronted with this challenge of overcoming his unconscious and conscious bias all the way back in Acts chapter 10. That amazing pork buffet vision that he receives from God and his call to go minister to that Roman centurion, all led by Jesus. And it is Peter that boldly confronts the exclusionary nature of the church. He names the conflict for what it is, a conscious and unconscious bias towards certain types of people, and he condemns the use of exclusionary tactics by the church without membership and salvation from anyone. And he emphatically states that it is God who doles out grace to all people, for it is by grace that we all have been saved. And whether you agree with it or not, through Peter, the Bible tells us that the church is not exclusionary towards others, no matter the category we create, based on age or gender or sexuality or nationality or religious affiliation or political allegiance or economic status and endless other categories. Our unconscious bias pushes us to tribalism. Tribalism is rooted in fear, and fear produces a need to control. And when we fear something, we feel the need to control it so that we won't be fearful of it. And when we need to control things, we are at odds with anything that might threaten our control. But the Bible tells us that there is no love and fear, because perfect love drives out all fear. Tribalism is a delusion of the church. It blinds us from the real mission and vision that God has called us to. It builds up a wall before us that God is calling us to tear down. So is tribalism really what God desires for the church? Could it be that we've confused the mission 
of being right for the mission that Christ has called us to, to be the presence of Jesus in a polarizing world? Could it be that the church needs a fuller perspective, a theological perspective, shaping the way that we interact with each other and with the world? Could it be that the church does not need to draw a defined line in the sand, but instead expand the landscape to hear and to share more diverse stories? Could it be that we need to lean heavy on the grace of God that saves rather than human conscious and unconscious bias. The Apostle Paul and his companion Barnabas, who were the ones that brought this Gentile inclusion issue to the apostles in Jerusalem. In the book of Galatians, Paul wrote his perspective into the church's ruling at the end of this, and he states this in Galatians 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither Gentile, nor slave, nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the most beautiful and profound statement in all of Paul's letters. And it's hard to even give commentary because it's so all-encompassing. But if, if I was to try to summarize what Paul is saying in these verses in just one sentence, I think what he's trying to say is, the goal is to be like Jesus, not each other. And with this statement, Paul proclaims that there is openness, dissolving of barriers, tearing down of indifference, and call for unity in the kingdom of God. And at the same time, Paul embraces the diversity among God's children, but calls us to realize that our differences are of the beauty and fullness of the church, not a reason to divide us. There are many things that might divide us, Paul urges. Some of you are Jews by birth, others are Gentile, some are male, others are female, some are slave and others free, yet Jesus unites us. God knows that this is a message that the church needs to hear today. God knows that this is a message that the church needs to bring forth into the world today. There are so many things that divide us. Race, economic status, gender, sexual identity, life experience, likes and dislikes, theological perspectives, and political persuasions. And we can either choose to let our differences divide us, or we can choose to let Jesus unite us. This is the essential thing that unites us, that brings us together from all of our walks of life, is Christ Jesus. This is all that matters. And it's time for, it's time for the church to discover what really matters, what really unites us. It's time for us to put Jesus back at the center of all that we say and do, to embrace Jesus' call to embrace others not like us. You see, as we draw our minds around this, Paul shows us that, that the way that we embrace this fact of reality is realizing that the church is called to be a heterogeneous community. That's a funny term, isn't it? Heterogeneous means diverse in character or content, different in kind, unlike composed of many parts. Remember what Paul states in verse 28? 
there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. He's not stating that in Jesus we lose our individual identity to become uniform or standard or a commonplace archetype of what Christianity should look like. Instead, Paul is pointing us out to say that, yes, indeed, there are very different types of people, yet we're all composed of this full breadth of this beautiful thing called Jesus Church. You see, a heterogeneous church is one that coexists with the differences that reflect the full expression of humanity with equal value. The Jewish Christians might have included the Gentile Christians into the fold, but they would always see them as second best. And yet in Acts chapter 15, we see Jesus' apostles move from a place of just inclusion, but the full inclusion of all people where they were all welcome, all had a say-so. This is the benefit of a heterogeneous church. I want you to think back to your last week. Think about all the places that you went in town, all the products you used. Take, for example, fitness or working out. It finds its origin in the ancient Near East where young boys went through a strenuous training as far back as 800 BCE. Or what about that cotton in the clothes that you're wearing right now? It, it finds its origins in 6000 BCE in ancient India and Pakistan where people first discovered its usage. Or what about the creamer you put in your coffee this morning? Or if you're like some people, there's a little bit of coffee with your creamer. That finds its roots all the way back in 8,000 BCE to North Africa. You see, our development of the benefits of modern-day medicine finds its roots as far back to the 15th century BCE in China. More likely than not, most of the comforts you experienced in the last week were the result of a heterogeneous approach to consumerism, healthcare, fitness, and more. Meaning, that you would not have most of the experiences that you enjoy each day if it wasn't for a multicultural society that we reap the benefits of different genders and ethnicities and races and economic status and political leanings and theological perspectives and philosophical approaches that help shape the world in which we live. And so here are a few things that I want us to consider as we wrap up our time together. First of all, if God desires for us to not be tribal, not to be exclusionary people who think and look different from us. If the church is supposed to be a heterogeneous community, then we must check our unconscious bias in the name of Jesus. And in order to do that, the first thing we have to recognize is that all of us do have an unconscious bias against certain types of people. Again, it's human nature. In order to recognize these unconscious bias, by examining the types of people we do not have in our life. That's what we see happening in Acts chapter 15, where the Jewish Christians had to come to terms with how they felt about these Gentile Christians. This was a hard realization and a hard conversation. I imagine it was even more difficult to change their views of those people that they thought were pork-chop-eating, uncircumcised people. Going back to the exercise we did earlier, the naming the three people outside your family that you trust the most. You see, when you examine this list and examine probably the lack of diversity, we can see that most of us, without realizing it, surround ourselves with people with similar experiences and perspectives as us. Again, human nature does this to simplify our decisions. And while we might not have people in our lives that are different from us, they typically 
do not fit into the inner sanctum of our trust. So if you were to draw three concentric circles representing three levels of trust, most of us could put somebody who has a different political, religious, sexual orientation, education, or economic status than us in the outer circle, meaning I know somebody by name that's different from me. However, very few of us can put people in the second circle, meaning somebody that I'd be happy to bring up to my front porch for a conversation. And even fewer of us have people very different from us in that third circle, meaning you are welcome in the inner sanctum of my life and my trust. One of the ways to recognize and to understand our unconscious bias is by finding our trigger, considering the particular subcategory of people that cause you to lean towards this bias. A few subcategories might include age, ethnicity, class, gender, disability, physical ability, quality of life, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, education, background, language, marital status, parental status, work experience, religious persuasion, theological convictions, political affiliation, and political stances. And I think the second thing we have to do to listen is to listen to the stories of people who have different opinions and way of life of us. Again, we unconsciously surround ourselves with people who see the world as we do, but imagine what would happen if we surround ourselves with people who did look at the world differently than us. We might actually have a chance to step back from our unconscious bias and to begin to understand why other people formulate the opinions they have or why they live their life the way that they do. One of the most powerful ways to overcome an unconscious bias is to live into Jesus' calling to experience the fullness of God's diverse creation by actually getting to know those that are different from us. One of my favorite stories from the Bible comes from Saul's conversion experience. We then later call him Paul. Here is this guy who persecuted the church with religious zeal. In his mind, he thought he was doing the will of God to find those heretics who were ruining his Jewish faith and leading the people astray. And yet Jesus met him on the road to destroying many more lives. And Saul was changed by that experience, and he was blinded by the presence of Jesus. And then the Spirit of God goes to a man named Ananias, who was living in the very town that Saul was going to go arrest Christians, and he calls Ananias to go and to care for Saul. God was calling Ananias a follower of Jesus, to help the man who was arresting and having Jesus' followers killed. And yet Ananias goes, caring for Saul, feeding him, teaching him, and showing him that though they are different, Jesus had brought them together. And it is through Saul's time with Ananias, the Bible says that his blindness fell away like scales. And he could see the world through Jesus' eyes. Paul would go on to write these powerful words. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite 
and devour each other. Watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Love. Love can answer conflicts. Hate, affliction, hostility, indifference, and unconscious bias. Paul's message to the Galatians, to their raging indifference and the conflicts, was to love each other and to love their neighbor radically. And you see, that's what God is calling all of us to, both individually and communally as a church. Saul was the product of inclusive love of Ananias, who looked beyond his conscious and unconscious bias to realize that even God could bring someone like Saul into the church, and the church was forever different as a result of it. In this complicated world, with complicated issues, complicated opinions, complicated theological differences, complicated conflict, complicated in the nature that we're at each other's throats over politics, we find that the answer is love. We are united in Jesus, and we are sustained by loving like Jesus. As we gather together this morning, we look back at those who've gone before us. Today is All Saints Day, and we also celebrate All Souls Day. And we recognize that so many that have come before us embraced the differences of each other in order to unite us together. And so as we look to this great cloud of witness that surrounds us, both that have gone on before us and those that surround us now, May we see and embrace the love and grace of God that empowered all of us to be where we are today. I want to invite you into a few quiet moments of reflection. And I want you to think about the people who've helped shape you into who you are today. I shared with those that were able to the opportunity to read the window pane this last week is Aubriana, over, over the pandemic, she Uh, turned six years old on September the 8th. And for our family, that's a very unique day because we get to celebrate Aubriana, who is this amazing spark plug of life and beauty and intelligence. And at the same time, two years before Aubriana was born, that was the day that my Nana passed away. And so that day is a day of love. It's a day of remembrance. And I think about someone like Evelyn Roden, my Nana, who shaped me into who I am today. Who are the saints of your life? Who are the people that made you into who you are? 